Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts. And uh, we're going to be in verses 31 to 37, Church Without Walls. Verse 31 says, After they prayed, and the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now, verse 34, uh, we just kind of read it and we just move on, but it says, there were no needy persons among them. Poverty was eradicated. Now, we're not talking about the society at large. You know, we're talking about primarily the believers, the Christians, right? But we're not talking about a group of 20, 30 people. By this time, we're talking perhaps 10, 15, 20,000 people who claim to follow Jesus. And the author of Luke says there were no, there's no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, check this out. I forgot to mention this morning. You know, I always get questions about these descriptions of the early church. They're like, it was a group of communists, right? They were socialists. No, these weren't communists, nor were they embracing socialism. Look at the text carefully, okay? Can you go back to verse uh, 34? It says, there were no needy persons among them. Why? It says, from time to time, as needs arose. I say it again, Acts chapter 2, same thing. This wasn't enforced by law. This was a response to people overwhelmed by love. They they, They did this selflessly, willingly. But it was so generous and radical that there were no needy persons among them. And then verse 36 tells about Joseph, Barnabas, a character that will come up in um, the rest of this book later. Look, you guys, uh, this is an incredibly important text. We we, we said that the book of Acts Chronicles is a movement of, 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 of... Christianity via the church. And the church is not a building, it's not an address. Church is you, church is me, church is us. It's God's people on a mission. And Christianity from the very beginning was not an institution. It was a movement and a vibrant, organic, living thing of God's people that turned the Roman world upside down. Now, listen to this. We know that there were descriptions of what this group of people were like. We found one in Acts chapter 2. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. And we said few weeks back that one of the characteristic attributes of of this community of God's people was this close-knit, tight-knitness. There was relational, tight-knit, close-knit intimacy such that they weren't described as, you know, they met together a lot. They did a lot of stuff together. The Bible says they were together. It described the state of being. They love each other. I go, we're, they're, they're together. They're together. We say that in our culture, right? We say they're, they're together. What are we saying? It's not just that they 
do stuff together. It's, it's described as a state of being, a oneness, an intimacy. In the early church, they, they were together. Now, part of the key the success, the why the world noticed this was, check this out. It wasn't just spiritual sharing, but it was economic sharing. They shared their resources, their money, their possessions together. Sit on that for a moment, because this is where we're going this morning. The reason why the unbelieving world noticed the group of Christians wasn't just because, look how they pray together. Well, look how they sing together. Look how they gather together Sunday services. They were visibly different because they saw people taking their possessions, their goods, their money, their resources, and radically and generously sharing it with people such a way that there was not a single needy person among them. Are, are you following? And the world noticed. Now, listen to the, the, the why. Because anybody can say you love God. But you know what God says in Scripture? You'll show me by what you do with your resources, your money, your possessions. You can say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. I love that brother, sister in Christ. The Bible says it'll ultimately show in what you do with your stuff. Really? Really? 1 John chapter 3. Look what he says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And which we go, laying down our lives. Oh, how do we do that? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells you how you do that. It says what? If you, anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The way that people will know of your genuine love for your neighbors and others is what you do, not just your words, money and possessions. The early church was visibly different in this way, so much so that people looked at them and said, something's got to happen to them. What happened to them? What happened to them? What happened to you that makes you the way you are? You know what? This, this isn't that far-fetched. You're not a Christian here this morning. Can you imagine a society culture in which people are this radically voluntarily selfless and giving and generous, would the society just work better? Would you want to be a part of a society like that? Of course you would! Who wouldn't want to be part of a society where there are no needy persons because people are this radically selfless, giving, generous? The unbelieving world noticed Julian was a Roman emperor in the 4th century who wanted to wipe out Christianity from the face of the earth. And yet he wrote a letter conceding the power and the impact of Christianity to a friend. And in the letter, he said this. He said, their success, Christians, lies in their charity to all. They not only take care of their own poor, but ours as well. Their dynamic witness for why the world noticed was economic. How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? Well, that's the question we're asking this morning. 
Now, part of, part of why this is so powerful for me, you guys, is I, there was a verse here that I noticed this week as I studied it that kind of was like, huh, at first it seemed out of place, and yet when I studied it more, it made perfect sense and it was powerful. Verse 33, it says, With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, check this out. What is your response and what is, or what is, what is often the response when you and I go out? And we say, talk about the resurrection of Jesus, you know. What do you believe? We believe that Jesus Christ literally and physically rose from the dead. You know? When the early disciples shared this message, the Bible says in verse 33, there was power in it. People were like changed. They were convicted. They were transformed. They embraced it. Why? The interesting thing is verse 33 follows verse 32. Powerful insight there, okay? It follows verse 32, okay? And in verse 32, we've just seen a description of their economic sharing. And then there's this random statement about how their verbal witness had power. And then in verse 34 and on, it talks more about their economic sharing. Check this out. This is what Luke is getting at. He is saying their witness to the power of the resurrection, their testimony, their verbal testimony, and saying why they needed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah who died for the sins of the world but rose again. It's true. Believe it. The reason why people are able to believe it is because of the way they live. With their money and possessions. I said this morning, this makes sense in my head. <laughs> and oftentimes it may not make sense in your head. So I'm going to try to make it make sense in your head. And you tell me, why is it that the preaching of the resurrection combined with the demonstration and the embodying of their financial radical sharing had power? What did the resurrection of Jesus Christ the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the first fruits of what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ ushers in what the scripture calls the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. And the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, is about working. Right now, it's at work to redeem and restore, not just you and me spiritually, but all of creation. The Hebrews, the Israelites had a word for this. They called it shalom. They said, when God finally comes and makes the world right, we will experience once again shalom. What is shalom? Shalom is not just absence of, of battle. Shalom was a word that described universal flourishing, completeness, wholeness. In other words, the Israelites believed that when God finally came to restore everything, they, the entire world would experience wholeness, universal flourishing, shalom in every facet, not just spiritually so that we know God, but there's economic shalom. There's physical shalom. There's sociological shalom in every way. The world that they describe when God finally comes down with his rule and reign and restores all things is the kind of world in which there are no more senseless wars that kill thousands of people. When God's rule and reign is completed, there's no such thing as AIDS that leaves millions of children orphaned. When God's shalom, his rule and reign finally is ushered, there's no such thing as... Um, Complete lack of equality in education because you happen to live in the wrong zip code. You following so far? Shalom would mean not just that we're forgiven of our sins to go to heaven, but shalom ultimately meant that in this world there will be no poor among you. Because poverty will be eradicated. Now check this out. Why did their message about the resurrection have so much power? Because the world got a glimpse of what the world will ultimately look like when the world no longer has a 
injustice. Does that make sense? Make sense here? Does that make sense? So in other words, them being generous and having no needy among them wasn't just a nice, good Christian thing to do. It said to the people, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, all of creation is going to be restored. And they said, really? He said, really? How do we know? Check this out. We exist, uh, Christians, church, to say to the We're daring the world out there to say, check us out. You want to see that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is going to restore everything? Check us out. Yeah. Does that make sense? The reason why that power is because they didn't just talk about some nonsensical thing. People are like, they talked about it and they said, you want to see a world where all things are going to be restored? Here's a glimpse. No poor. This is the reason why how you and I live together in community is so important. Because you could talk endlessly about Jesus Christ all you want, but if they cannot see it in us as a community together, it will fail to have power. It will fail to have power. Now, is, is there a time that's more, more like ripe than now than to talk about what we're talking about? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I talked about a few weeks back. This is the time right now where people who idolize and put money and financial security as their God, their God just got crucified and shows no signs of resurrection. And you and I are saying, we do believe in a God who did get crucified, but he rose again and lives today. Not only that, but you realize that we live in a perfect environment in which people, look, we live in an environment where people are like, what's mine? It's mine. I got to save you some up. We don't know what's going to happen to the economy. And people are becoming even more inward focused, even more about themselves. What, do you know how radically different you would be if in this current time you did the exact radical opposite? You said, all the more right now I'm going to be generous. All the more right now I'm going to be radically giving. Are you kidding me? People are going to go, what happened to you? What, what, what? To which you can go, you want to know? Yeah? Does that make sense? Okay, here's the challenge. Challenges, I know you guys, see? I rarely meet people in our church who are like, I'm greedy. <laughs> I am greedy. It's my money. Nobody can have it. It's oh my! I, I don't meet people like that in our church. You know, maybe they're out there and they just don't come and talk to me, rightfully so. But you know, like I don't. So, so the, the challenge is this: challenges. I don't have. You know, our church is one in which people are going hungry. No, no, no. Our church is one in which check this out. Mentally and intellectually, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good, Peter. But a small percentage of you guys actually tie. A small percentage of you guys actually give generously and radically to the poor or to charity to, or other ministries. Very small percentage. Where's the disconnect? You could embrace this, but you know, we're grown up now. What do I mean? You know, it's amazing. Being a father now, you know, it's innate. If you think selfishness, greed, so on and so forth is not an innate part of sinful humanity, wait till you become a parent. Okay? 
Because the first word they know, first word they know, you don't have to teach them is the word mine. And the first word they need to be taught to counteract that is share, right? <laughs> mine share, mine share, mine share. It's constant, you know. Here's the thing. As parents, adults, we teach our children that possessions are for sharing. But we live our lives and act as if possessions are for keeping. So you may not be greedy, but you kind of get pissed off when somebody asks to borrow something from you, even money. You might not be greedy, but the reality is you pretty much spend the entirety of your paycheck on yourself. But it's a tiny percentage, you know, given towards somebody else. The reality is you could say you embrace this, but you're going, I don't have a lot of money. It's all mine. I worked hard for it, so therefore I'm going to spend the way I want to. And nothing you say, Peter, will ever change that. Yeah. Why is that? See, here's the thing. We can't embrace and live out Acts chapter 4 because you're idealistic. See, I have the activist types in our church going, kingdom of God, idealistic world, shalom, yes. Uh, it's not going to last unless you experience the essence of the engine that runs this whole thing. Some of you guys are going, boy, that's a great idea. What is the engine that drove all this? What was the experience that made all the difference? Look at verse 31 again. Did anybody notice verse 31? What is the thing? Check out, check it out. What is the thing that became the catalytic factor to them living this kind of a life? You notice? What happened to them? They, they what? They prayed? No, no, they prayed. Yeah, they prayed. But something else happened. What happened? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, no. Here we go again. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Ah, Non-charismatics among us. Please hang in there, okay? The charismatics among us. Check, okay, because, you know, the Holy Spirit, just listen to what I have to say. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result, verse 32 to 37. See, listen, when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapter headings and verse headings and divisions. When the Bible was originally written, it was just letters and words. Editors eventually put verses and chapters on there. In other words, when Luke wrote this, here's what you were seeing. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they spoke the word of God boldly. They were together as one. They radically shared. The radical generosity was a result, inevitable result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so then here's what this means. That means that if you're not radically generous, even surprisingly to you, you have not experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. But I do ministry. Not, no, 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 no. I'm not doubting your experience, but the Bible is saying one of the inevitable results of being filled with the Holy Spirit is this incredible, undeniable, eye-popping, make this any sense, generosity. If your life is not characterized by this, you need to ask yourself this morning, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Okay, so check this out. If, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and, and Holy Spirit, and you are a Christian but very conservative, this is important for you. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Remember? It's not to be after. It's not. Filled with the Holy Spirit is the assurance and the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done becoming alive in us. Who Jesus Christ and what he has done, the gospel of grace, the essence of it becoming alive in us. It's frankly, when we look at the cross, we don't just see a wooden thing that means something. It's when we look at the cross, and I don't mean to get all emotional, but when you look at the cross, there is literally a, a, a visceral thing in you that goes, ah!
filled with the Holy Spirit, who Christ is and what he has done, becomes alive and real. And, and one of the telltale signs that you're filled with the Holy Spirit is not that you speak in tongues. And all that one of the telltale signs, you know what the Bible says? Is that you become fearless. Shiri, I just caught the video the second time. First time I'm watching, oh, that's cool. I'm getting, I got the result. Check this out. Any cowards out there? Of course you're not going to raise your hand because you're a coward. Okay, hey, those of us, those of us that are like lacking courage, listen, listen, listen. The reason why we lack courage, sorry, I just offended a bunch of people. The reason why we lack courage, according to the Bible, the reason why we're cowards is because we're not experiencing the Spirit of God. And there's an enormous insight here, but I want to get to that. I was looking at Martin Luther. So as he's sitting there, he's gotten the threat, right? As he's sitting there and he's going, God, what do I do? What do I do? I believe that he experienced the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden energizes him with an incredible boldness that says, whether I die or whether I live, I'm going to be about truth. How does that happen? How does that happen? You know how it happened to Martin Luther King Jr.? How it happens to you and me? Paul tells us in Romans 8. Listen to this. Listen to this. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to what? Fear. The Holy Spirit's role is to oppose a spirit of fear. If you are fearful, you're a coward, it's because you have not experienced and are experiencing the fullness of the spirit. It's not enough information, okay? Because listen to what he says. But you receive the spirit of sonship. So by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I wish you could show that video again. Here's how fearlessness comes from. It's not being that. All of a sudden I'm fearless. Holy Spirit comes and what does he say? He says, Martin, you're not alone. He comes and says, Teddy, you're mine. He testifies with our spirit, verse 16, that you are his. You belong to him. First John 4, perfect love drives out fear because there is no fear in love. When you are... Ash- <laughs> when you look at the cross... And you don't just see a wooden figure that's standing there. When you look at the cross, you're able to sense and know inside the depths of your soul, you belong to me. You are mine. What could you possibly be afraid of? Can I just image for you guys a mental image first john chapter 3 says how great is the love the father has lavished onto us that we are called children of god for that is what we are okay image mental image um i lived on a small tiny island in the middle of south pacific called guam for about two years in the early 90s doing mission work and one of my favorite things to do while i was on the island of guam was there was a little waterfall called telefofo waterfalls okay 
It was this tiny little like 10 foot waterfall that was in the middle of like jungle somewhere. So I had to drive like 30 minutes, hike 40 minutes and get to this place. And this place is like this remote, you know, place where the, and, and, and there was always like old men, I don't know why, but it was old men who sat under this waterfall because it was like soothing and relaxing, you know, on a hot summer day, right? So I would like secretly go there and wait till all the old men were done and they would go home and I would just go and just sit there. And just, it was a refreshing hot summer. They're just like, Do you know what the Apostle John is saying in 1 John chapter 3? When you and I experience the fullness of the Spirit of God and God lavishes the truth of His love over us, it's not like Peter sitting at the bottom of a 10-foot waterfall being refreshed. But it's like you and I standing at the bottom of the Niagara Falls. their arms spread wide as God's spirit and his unconditional infinite love for you comes pouring again and again and again Being filled with the Spirit of God is you standing at the bottom of the waterfall of God's amazing love for you. Allowing God to do it again and again. And I asked this question earlier to the 9 o'clock service because I think I know the answer to this. When was the last time you experienced that? So then you wonder our lives don't look different. When the Holy Spirit comes and fills you, it is the experience of that. Look, let me just human and you know everyday analogy. Don't we don't don't you just totally act different, like a totally different person when you're around somebody who you know loves you unconditionally and accepts you as you are? And vice versa, when you're around people, you're not quite sure how they, you know, guard, you know, my son, my son, Parker, three, three and a half years old, I kid you not, he'll get on a 15-foot roof and just jump, okay? And of course, his mom's going, no, 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 get down, and I'm going, jump, Parker, jump, run, and then, you know, where does a three and a half year old, listen, where does three and a half get the security to go, I could jump and I know I'm going to be completely okay? He knows that his daddy the reason why you and I are cowards is not because of information the reason why you and I are cowards is because we are not assured of the father's love for you you say you know it but you don't listen to what happened to these people Uh, just real quick because I need to get to the meat of this verse 31 they spoke the word of God boldly why, why is it that being showered by the love of God, being showered and assured of that, you know, result in boldness to speak? Because the, 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 the amazing love of the Father is becoming real to you. So you know what? Their, their fear could have been social marginalization. You're a freak. You're a Christian. We don't want anything to do with you. They didn't care. It could mean imprisonment. 
Dr. King didn't care. It could mean death. If you speak out, death. You don't care. Why? You're not alone. I'm with you. You're mine. Another thing that resulted from them, they only spoke the word God boldly, but they, they, they were together. I love this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And you know what, guys? This oneness, and, and to me this is amazing. Do you know why there was such unity amongst them? Because they weren't just afraid to speak out. They also weren't afraid of each other. Because they were so overwhelmed by the assurance of God's love. They didn't have the need to hide. And they became completely transparent. Can you imagine this church? Where because you are so secure and the assurance of God's love is so real and vivid to you that you don't care what she thinks or what he thinks. Can you imagine the level of transparency, honesty, and that we create in a body? Isn't that the reason why we're not closer? Isn't that the reason why? Isn't that the reason why we don't confess our sins to each other? Because you and I are deathly afraid. Judgment, criticism, rejection. And God says, if you know what it means to be unconditionally and totally accepted, would you be afraid? Third thing, though, that happened. It's the bulk of where we want to get to. Those things could be sermons in itself. Is that they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. This is just amazing to me. The result of being filled with the Spirit of God and experiencing this overwhelming assurance of God is that it resulted in not just boldness in speech, but boldness in deed. And you know what, guys? Let me just say it once more. Let me say this once, and then we're going to just kind of tease it out. The reason why you and I are not more radically generous, the Bible says, is not because we're stingy. It's because we're afraid. Does this resonate with anybody? Raise your hands if this raises. Isn't this the reason why we're not more radically generous? The Bible says it's not because you're stingy. It's because you're a coward. I'm sorry. That's the last time I'm going to say that word. It's because we're afraid. What are we afraid of? And we're going to get into that in a moment. But the reason why the Bible says we're not more radically generous and we don't resemble Acts 2 and 4 is because we don't experience the fullness of the Spirit. Because we don't experience the fullness of the Spirit, we're afraid. What are we afraid of? Okay. Uh, Your attitude towards your money, this is a thesis, this kind of, your attitude towards your money will ultimately be a telltale sign whether you're still religious or you're gospel embracing. Did somebody say amen? Somebody say amen? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, okay. I'm sorry. That was, that was lame. I actually heard nobody say amen, but I said that just to draw. Okay. So. You know why I do that? Because I'm not assured of God's love for me and I need your approval, see? <laughs> Here's what the Bible says, and I'll get into this. The Bible says it's impossible for somebody who genuinely believes, I was a complete and totally lost sinner. And there was absolutely nothing that I could have done to save myself from the mess, from the crap, from the stuff that I was in. The only reason why I am where I am today is but for the grace of God. The Bible says it's impossible for somebody who genuinely believes that to turn around and go, my money, stingy, not going to get it. Why? Let me show you a text. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, okay? 
if you don't have your Bibles, you could just look up at the screen. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to go over every single insight that's here. I just want to draw out a general principle of what I just talked about. Religion and gospel. I just want to draw, just draw a general principle here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, uh, here, here, here's, a, here's the background of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, okay? One of the things that Paul is doing right now in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is this, okay? Paul is collecting money from various churches that he's planted throughout Asia. And the reason why he's collecting money is because the mother church in Jerusalem is struggling financially. They've gone through famine. Their church finances are not doing well. There are hungry people all over the place. So Apostle Paul has been going around collecting money to help this church in Jerusalem, right? And he does something here that I frankly, you know what he does? He kind of compares the Corinthian church to another church, you know? It's kind of like a parent going, why can't you be more like your brother? You know, he does one of those, which uh, I don't know how I feel about, but he does it. So we'll go with that, okay? So what he does in this text is he says to the Corinthians, he says, look, 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 hey, hey. The problem with you, Corinthians, is you already said, when I said, who wants to give? You already, first one line, go, us, let us be generous. We want to give. And then they started backing up. So Paul calls them out and goes, why are you backing up? You said you wanted to give generously. What's up? And then he says in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, and now, brothers, we want you to know, Corinthians, about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy. I just need to stop here. I just laugh. Do those two words ever go together in your vocabulary, in your sentence? Out of their most severe trial, overflowing joy. Anybody? Okay, if you think that's bad, listen to what he says, okay? He says, overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And I'm going... He probably didn't write this right, you know. The words don't, shouldn't go like that, you know. Out of the most of your trial, I was angry, I was bitter, but then I got over it. <laughs> Out of the most of your trial, the overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Listen, listen. Rich generosity has nothing to do with how much money you have. None. Rich generosity, I'm not talking about that either. I'm not talking about how much you give. Rich generosity, living a life of record generosity isn't a dollar amount. It's a heart issue. And we're going to get to that. So listen to what he says. Here's the key on how you can go, severe trial, joy, desperate poverty, generosity. Where's the key? Verse 4. They urgently pleaded, oh, verse 3, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. I mean, come on. It's like, you know, it's like Paul is like rubbing it in. He's saying, when was the last time you, not because the pastor went up there and said, you need to give, you need to be generous, and there are poor people in your church. When was the last time you just sat there and said, I'm blessed. Honey, we're blessed. There's got to be people in our church, in the community that are not, and they're struggling Let's, let's initiate and see if there are people's needs we can meet. Huh. That's a, that's a, that's a radical concept, isn't it? Oh, no, I'm generous because whenever you tell us, Peter, about various people in needs, I'm willing to give, which is phenomenal. But Paul says, here's what happened to these people. They just basically said, uh, will you allow us to do this, please? Will you allow us to do this, please? Here's the key. But just as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, and your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. Verse 9. 
Guys, if you have something to underline with, and I need you to go home and meditate on this passage, please, because I don't have time to just like, verse 9, he's okay. He says, because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul says, Paul says that the reason why the Macedonian church, poor, financially not well off as they were, opened their homes, their hearts, their wallets, and gave even beyond their ability. That means that they, it's not like they gave to go in debt, but they gave in such a way that it hurt. The reason why he did that, Paul says, he directly points to the cross and he says, you know, you know the grace. The question you and I got to ask is, what was it about knowing the grace of God and the grace that's on the gospel that opened these people's hearts? And it wasn't, listen, do you know what Paul doesn't do here? And I love, Paul doesn't, he doesn't use the, I'm an apostle card. He doesn't say, my word is God's word, so thou shalt. He doesn't do that. You know what else he doesn't do? He doesn't do a slide presentation of hungry children starving in Jerusalem. He doesn't go, look, come on. Will you? And all of us are going, oh my gosh, they're starving children. Do you know why? Because let's be real. How many of us have given out a guilt? Does it last? Giving out of guilt will never last. Two re- a number of reasons for years. You know why? Giving out of guilt, eventually you'll get bitter. You'll get resentful. Because nobody likes feeling guilt for a long time. So eventually you're going to shut it off and go, I'm tired of feeling guilty. I don't care what you say. I don't care how skinny they are. No! Or, if you give out a guilt, you'll never be radically generous. Why? Because here's the thing about guilt we're really good at. We will do just enough to alleviate the guilt. And once the guilt is alleviated, we're like, I'm good to go. Third reason, and I'll say this. The reason why guilt never works is because God doesn't want you to give out a guilt. Can, is there anything worse than doing something because you're afraid of being damned? That's exhausting. It's crushing. There are people in here. You're walking in here today. I don't even know your name, but you're walking in here, your head's down, your shoulders are drooping, and you're just feeling condemned the whole time. Nobody has said it. Nobody's done anything. Because your whole approach to God, I'll get into, is one of religion, and you're just feeling condemned this morning, right? And God's going, that's not how I meant for you to live. That's not what the cross does. That's not what the cross does. Religion does that. The religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I'm not doing good in obedience right now, so therefore I'm condemned. Head down, shoulders droop. I'm a mess. Gospel says, I already know you're a mess. I already know you screw up. I already know that you're in that pit for the reason that you are. But the grace of God reaches down, not because of anything you do. I pulled you out. I saved you. Two totally different motivations. And you know why we think this way? Because some very famous Christians have said similar things. I was going to say stupid, but similar things. John Wesley. I love John Wesley. Man of God. But, you know, I'm sure if somebody went through all my podcasts, people could go, that was so stupid. That was so stupid. John Wesley said this. I'm sure he meant well. But this is not the motivation why you should give. John Wesley fans out there, please don't be offended. It's one small quote out of thousands that he said. 
He said this. He says, if you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, then give all you can. <laughs> Otherwise, I can no more hope for your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. <laughs> See, we hear that. We hear that. How do you respond? How do you respond? Some of us go, okay, get the checkbook out. I don't want to be damned to hell. You know, maybe for like two seconds, but the rest of us go, I don't want to give for that reason. I wouldn't want to give for that reason. And Paul says precisely. Paul has the audacity to go, the problem is you don't understand the grace. But I do, Paul. No, you don't. He says if you understand the grace of God, the degree to which you understand the grace of God, the degree to which you understand the depth of the gospel is the degree to which you'll be generous. Now, real quick, I want to, I mean, I talk about this all the time, so really quick, I want to, I want to just briefly explain to you why this understanding God's grace results in radical generosity, but really uh, approaching God from a standpoint of religion results in us not just being stingy, but being ungodly with our money. There are two things that religion does to us. You know what religion does to us? I obey there from so depth. It makes you self-righteous and insecure. True? True? Any self-righteous people out there? I'm one. Another one back there. Do you know why I get self-righteous? Listen, you know when I get self-righteous? Do you know when I start thinking I'm better than people? I'm more moral than people? Do you know when I start judging people? It's when I forget the grace of God. Now check this out. Why is that? Because if you are saved by your works righteousness, put the point up there, please, so I can just have you guys kind of take a look at it. Thank you. If you can earn salvation on your own, your works righteousness fosters an attitude of self-righteousness that makes you judgmental and critical. What do I mean? If you think that you're accepted by God because of how moral you are, how can you not look down at people who are not moral? It's impossible. How can you not? If you think that you are where you are with God because you're clean, you're pure, sexual, da, 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 and your moral things, how could you not? You're going to look at other people and go, what the heck's your problem? Just get yourself together. Same thing with money. Watch. If you think that everything that you have is because of how hard you've worked, how smart you are, you're going to say dumb things like what I hear on TV so often. If they just need to pull themselves by the bootstraps, if they just work harder, if they would just, and I'm going, <laughs> You don't understand the grace of God, do you? See, what if God came to you and said, spiritually, you just need to pull yourself by the bootstraps. You just need to try harder because if you perform well enough, I embrace you. Where would you and I be today? Where would you and I be today? Where would we be today? What does God do? God comes along. He doesn't say, pull yourself by the bootstraps, son. Just try a little harder. What does God do? God says, you can't pull your bootstraps high enough to get yourself out of this situation. So I have sent my son who dies on the cross for your sins, for your unrighteousness, and belief in him makes you righteous, makes you accepted. And faith in him makes you who you are. To which we go, I can get on board with that. Now, if that's the case with your spirituality, you're going to look at your money and go, God, everything that I have, all the positions that I have, is not because of how hard I worked. So it doesn't make you look at the poor and go, they're poor because they just need to pull them. You look at the poor and you go, how could I not? How could I not? How could I not be radically generous what I have? If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be... Have we forgotten? I know this isn't like tremendous biblical truth, but have you forgotten? Because some of you guys sitting there going, that doesn't, seriously, that doesn't register right with me, Peter, because you don't understand. You, you don't know how hard I've worked. Really. I'm not denying that you worked hard, but can I ask you a question? Would you have worked just as hard if you didn't grow up in the family you grew up in? And by the way, did you have anything to do with the family you grew up in? Last time I checked, uh, no. 
Because if not for the grace of God, you might have been born and destitute of poverty in Tibet in 12th century. But here you are. Secondly, but I'm really intelligent. Really. And you had something to do with that. Okay. Can we be more real? But the networks and the people that I met, really, and like they like just came in droves to you so that just at the right time and the right circumstances, you got that. You see what I'm, you see what I'm going with this? Isn't everything that we have, all the things that we have, a result of the grace of God and the grace of God alone? Is there anybody, is there anybody, you're a Christian I'm talking about, is there anybody here this morning is saying, there is one thing that's the result of what I, is there anybody who can say that? If that's the case then, why would you not look at the stuff that you have and go, God, if not for your grace? When you understand that, it doesn't just make you less critical and judgmental, it makes you more humble and embrace your pride. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so self-righteousness. Here's the second reason why the gospel heals the lack of generosity. Because the other thing that religion does, I'll put it up there. If I can earn salvation on my own, my works righteousness fosters a mindset of deep insecurity that makes me fearful and anxious. And this, I don't even have to share in depth. The reality is if you think your security, your standing, your relationship with God is completely dependent on how well you're doing, how you're not, when you're not doing well, you're going to walk around constantly going, I can be... Constant insecurity is a telltale sign that you still think you're accepted because of who you are and what you do. Telltale sign. Deep insecurity is the ultimate sign that you have not embraced gospel, which says your acceptance is not about you. It's about what he's done. Do you get that? (laughs) So how does it relate to money? If you're not secure in God's providential care for you, you're going to go, I need to save up for a rainy day. An emergency might come. I need to da-da-da-da-da. And God's going, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Are, are you where you are financially because how smart you are, how hard you've worked the job that you have? Excuse me. Are you responsible for what you have? To which we go, yee, mm, yee, mm. Let, me, let me think about that. Okay, hold on, hold on. Am I responsible for this? Is that a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. You are not where you are financially because of how hard you work. We need to go back to it. You are where you are because of God's gracious provision to you. Do you, not, do you not think that God knows the economy where it's at? Do you think God's up there going, you know, I just say this is in a recession. I mean, for crying out, it's like simple, like theological truth. So here's the thing. If you're sitting there going, everything that I have is because of what I've done, how could you possibly be secure about a job tomorrow, the economy turning around tomorrow? But if you believe that everything you have is because of God's amazing grace, that he is out for you, cares for you, even if tomorrow you get fired, the assurance in the depths of your heart and soul is God. Look at what Paul says. Come on. Look at, look at what Paul says. Romans chapter 8. This is from the message version. He says, if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else? Is there anything else? Is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? If God did that... If God did that, if God, out of his unconditional love and mercy and grace, provided this for you, this this is his provision, this is security, this is what he did for you, how dare you worry about your job? 
I mean, come on. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You guys. It's the most basic essence of Christianity. It's the most basic. God comes along and says, it's about the gospel of grace and who he is and what he has done. And it's not just for forgiveness of sins and eternal security, but God says every day after that, every day after that, if I was willing to send my one and only son to do for you what you could never do, and that's my care for you, that's my provision for you, that's my love for you, God says, why would I abandon you in any other way? And then why we're afraid, because we don't know. We don't have the security. At some point at the end of this service, I'm going to give an opportunity for those of you just to join me, because I'm right there with you. The thing that we need, you guys, is not just to go home and go, okay, I heard that message, so what do I figure out? No, the, the thing that we need to do is you and I need to somehow get to that place where we're going, God. God, I know that the economy is tough. It's rough out there, and financially, why, God, there's just an unbelievable amount of angst and I'm scared and anxiety and worry. But God, the thing that I need to do is not just the thing that I need to do is just to come, God, and stand at the foot of the Niagara Falls of the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the assurance of God and allow that to just come over me again and again and again and again and do that which I cannot do on my own. That's where we need to be. That's how I want us to start this year. Okay, real practically, let me just get, get, get through these things, and, and then I want us to have communion and pray. Uh, one, I know there's a number of practical ramifications, but just, I just want to focus on these three, and then we'll come back to these the rest of the year. One, please don't sit down with the calculator, but sit down with the cross, okay? Please don't go home and start computing, okay, my salary, this is my... Don't, don't do the numbers thing. When you go home, sit down with the cross, Meaning, picture the cross in front of you and, and remind yourself because the more we know of his love, the more we are assured of his infinite, eternal love for us, the more our hearts will be open to give. So I don't want you to go guilty in numbers. I want you to just go home and just sit down with the cross and allow God to come and whisper into the heart of your soul, you're not alone, you're okay, I'm with you. Two, um, don't, don't, don't be passive and spontaneous, but please be active and intentional. What do I mean? Uh, most of us, before we experienced the, the grace of God, I think many of us respond kind of in a passive and spontaneous way. Here's how, what that looks like. You know, it's kind of like it's mine. I, everything I have is because I've harder worked and, and the economy is bad and all these things. And so therefore, I'm just not going to. And we just kind of hoard. And then when somebody asks us, we just kind of begrudgingly give. And if we give, we give a small percentage. Or it takes a slideshow of people that are really struggling and suffering. And we just kind of reach into our pockets and God says you know what I don't want you to give like that here's what I want you to do I want you to go home sit down with the cross pray through talk to your spouse if you need to talk to your spouse and here's what I want you to do I want you to come up with a percentage I want you to determine what it is that you're going to commit to God first and then live on the rest 
Old Testament principle of tithing. Those of you that need actually a further teaching on tithing because you're like, isn't that just like giving church? What is that? Uh, prepared a, a, a Bible study paper for you at the information table. Please pick it up. Please pick it up before you go because I don't want you to just do it without understanding biblically what it is. But for those of us who understand it and we haven't done it in a while or scared to do it this coming year, here's what I want you to do. It's not about giving just 10%. It's about an attitude and a mindset that says, God, whatever it is that I get, first and foremost, I'm going to give to you. Remember when the tithing principle came into being, it was an agricultural society. People didn't get cash. They got crops. So what they did was the first fruits of the crops, the best of the crops, they just immediately took 10% of it and gave it. And it went to the ministry of the temple and to the poor. And the principle in the New Testament throughout Scripture is, whether it be 10% or whatever it is, I want you to set it aside. And instead of saying, well, how do I want to live? What do I want to do this year? And then if there's money left over to God, say, God, I trust you. I'm going to build the grace of God to come showering upon me. I'm going to give it to you first. I'm going to give it to you first. Some of you can't do it this year. That's okay. That's okay. Some of you need to work towards that. All I'm asking you to do, sit with the cross and determine what it is that you want to give in advance to God, to go into the ministry of the church to the poor and live on the rest. Be active intentional um, I, I want to share a brief story about how, how this works in the life of uh, in the life of people in our church um, there's a young man right before New Year's who came to see me it was a counseling session he was going through some really really hard things really hard things personally and, and wrestling with some things and he came to me and it was really powerful and just like a deep intense time and to be honest with you guys it was the end of the year I'm like emotionally drained and if not for the spirit of God it would have been a very difficult thing so we got done with this counseling session and, and, and the young man gets up he's 27 and as he's about to walk he goes Pastor Peter there's one more thing I want to talk to you about I said sure what is it he goes well I work in an industry where I did really really well and I got a pretty good bonus you know and, and I'm struggling right now whether I should give a 10% of it to God and I sit there going, yeah, well, you know, if you want, I'm thinking how much, you know, a couple hundred bucks, a few thousand. And then he says to me, I asked him, I says, how much, how much? And he goes, well, it was $450,000. So your response is interesting, and I'll get to that in a moment. And so he says that, right? So I'm standing there, you know, I know how our church was doing financially, you know. And I'm having this like dual conversation in my mind, you know. Uh, I, I could do the whole pull out the John Wesley quote, you know. Give all you can or you're going to burn in hell. You know, I could do that. <laughs> Maybe not the best route to go at this point, you know. He's already feeling kind of, you know. You know what I said? And, and, and of course the other part that's like, here's what I did. I said, First of all, I act the natural. I'm like, oh, that's good. You know, that's kind of, you know, like my bonus. But, you know, that's another story. Anyway, um, you know, just just let him, I could relate to him. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, do that. I, 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 here's what I said to him. I, I stopped him. I said, here's, I said, I don't want you to give because you feel guilty. I said, if you give because you feel guilty, I said, keep it. Our church doesn't need it. God doesn't want it. That took a lot for me to say, okay? I, I got to tell you, because I'm looking at church fight, I'm going, we could use that money. But you know what? God doesn't want you to give because you feel guilty. He doesn't. I don't want you to. 
Maybe you grew up in church with a pastor. If you don't tie them, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. I want, you to, I, I want you to sit at the cross and be so wrong. And this is what I told this young man. I said to him, I said, here's the reason why I want you to give part of that $450,000. Here's why I want you to give. Here's why I want you to give. I said to him, I said, I want you to give. If deep down inside, you know and understand that in light of everything that you've gone through, the reason why you're not out in the streets in a gutter somewhere and you're standing where you are today is because God has been gracious to you. God has been gracious to you. I don't know why he has, but he has been gracious to you. He's been gracious that you made that much money. So, if you're overwhelmed by the gratitude of how amazing God's grace is, then write that check and give it to the church. Otherwise, keep it. He came. And he wrote me a little email. And I want to read just a portion of it to you. I had a successful year financially. Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) Small, you know, small understatement (laughs) he's a really good guy I'm getting to know him a lot better he says I just gave to God what was rightfully his Pastor Peter I gave to God what was rightfully his I had struggled with the idea of tithing 10% because it was so much money but my recent incident made me realize how important it was for me to give God control over every part especially in ones where I compromise the most. I also knew that if I wasn't able to give when I had a lot, it would be hard to give when I had less. Listen. If you're tithing $10 out of $100, human eyes, attitude says, yeah, 10 bucks, you know, what is that, a cup of coffee? Then we make $1,000 and write a check for $100, yeah, $100, you know, 10000 But the truth is, it's all God. And God looks at $10 being given by a widow who has $100 to give. And God looks at a 27-year-old young man who has a check for $40,000. And in God's eyes, what honors him is, have even been faithful. Uh, One last thing. Okay, that wasn't the hardest part. You, you ready? This is the hardest part. This is why we went a little over this morning. You ready? Here's the third truth, third principle. Give the sacrifice. What do I mean? Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Church, here's what I'm asking you to do this year. Here's what I'm asking you to do. A guy comes to Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, famous theologian, scholar, pastor in American history. And he says, I'd like to give, but I I can't afford to give, many of us. I can't afford to give. And Jonathan Edwards says this. He gave him this verse to carry each other's burdens in this way to fulfill the law of Christ. And he said this to him. He said, if your giving is such that you carry no burden on yourself, then how do you fulfill the law of Christ that says, carry someone else's burden? 
Does that make sense? In other words, fulfilling this law of Christ of generosity is one in which if you and I give in such a way, it affects nothing of our lifestyle, nothing of where we live, nothing of what we eat, nothing of what we drive, nothing of what we wear. It does nothing to us, affects nothing. He is saying, how in the world are we as Christians carrying each other's burdens? Hmm? Biblical faithful giving is when you give in such a way that it begins to affect you in such a way that it becomes a, biblical word, a burden to carry your brothers and your sisters. Hmm? That's the biblical principle of giving. So a widow with the $100 that gives $10, for her it's, God, you know that I don't have much. And she gives faithfully, and God blesses that. You and I, you and I, let's be honest. If we are going to be a witness, a testimony to the world, if you and I give in such a way that it affects nothing of us in such a way that we carry zero burden of our brother and our sister, the Bible says, how will the world know the radical generosity of Christ? So the question for you and I this morning is not 5%, 10%, 15%. The question for you and I this morning is simply this. What does it mean for us to live lives of radical generosity in such a way that we see a brother or sister carrying 100 pounds and we say, let me carry 30 of that. And carrying the 30 pounds actually means something. Hmm? What does this mean for you? Grace, come on up, please, and the worship team. Refer yourself to the screen before we have communion. Some of you might be familiar with a document called the Lausanne Covenant, which was written in 1974 by a group of worldwide Christians. It was, an, it, was, it was this thing that was spearheaded by Billy Graham. John Stott was one of the critical people in this. Uh, 23, 2300 Christian leaders from all over the world got together and they wrote up this document which was actually more of a confession of what it is that God has called us to do that we need to do better as Christians. And this part right here I think articulates for maybe for you going, what does this mean? What does this mean? Can somebody put it into words? I think this is what it means. While some of us have been called to live among the poor and others to open our homes to the needy, all of us are determined to develop a simpler lifestyle. We intend to re-examine our income and expenditure in order to manage on less and give away more. We lay down no rules or regulations for either ourselves or others, yet we resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing and housing, travel and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion. Where to draw the line requires conscientious thought and decision by us together with members of our family. Those of us who belong to the West need the help of our third world brothers and sisters in evaluating our standards of spending. And those of us who live in the third world acknowledge that we too are exposed to the temptation to covetousness. So we need one another's understanding, encouragement, prayers. Bow your heads with me. The question is really 
a simple and, and yet difficult one, church, and that is, as you sit there, you're asking, I'm asking, have I understood the grace of God? Is the grace of God real in my life? Is the grace of God, has it penetrated to the depths of my soul? Or is it just some intellectual thing that I believe? Has the grace of God and the ministry of Christ on your behalf, on my behalf, has that become something that's real? Why am I not more generous? Why am I not more radical in my giving? Why am I not more secure? Why am I still so fearful? Why am I still so anxious? Why am I still so insecure? Have I understood? Do I understand? Do I know about the grace? About the grace? And this morning, uh, as we take communion, I can't think of a more profound symbol, you guys, and an act that reminds us and was meant to remind us who he is and what he has done. The only way that your heart will be melted and your grip on your money and your possessions and your life will be loosed is not because of more information. It's only when you can stand under the waterfall of God's showering, lavishing, overwhelming, powering love that comes to the Spirit. And this morning, if you're like me and you're thirsty, you're parched, it's been a while, and you've forgotten about His grace, you've forgotten about the assurance of God's love, you've forgotten, it's been old news. The cross no longer electrifies and melts your heart. If that's you, you know what I want to ask you to do? Will you just stand with me? Just stand with me where you are, and I want to pray with you and for you, okay? So I want to take a moment to do that. So if that's you, just be bold. Stand, stand. Nobody else looking. This is you, God, you, God. Anybody need to find themselves at the bottom of their waterfall, the Niagara Falls, the Niagara Falls-like lavishing of God's love, the Spirit of God, overwhelming, Spirit of God, overpowering. Anybody, just stand. Stand from where you are this morning. I want you to stand. Be bold to stand from where you are. And I want to pray for you and with you. I want to pray for you and with you. Jesus. If you're standing here this morning, will you just go ahead and just... Put your arms out wide to the side. Put your arms out wide to the side. Put your arms out wide to the side. Anybody else want to stand and join us? You can do that as I'm praying. Stand, stand, put your arms to the side. And and, and, and God, I'm I'm hungry. I'm thirsty for you, God. God, I stand here this morning confessing that I'm thirsty and in need, once again, of the overwhelming, overpowering God, outpouring God of, of your, your love, your grace, God, of, of, of the truth of who you are and what you've done for me. God, I need your powerful spirit in, in the falls to come and, and to remove my fear, to remove my anxiety, God, to remove my insecurity, God. God, I need the power and the movement of your spirit, God, to come showering upon me, Lord, this morning upon me and my brothers and my sisters that are standing here this morning and saying, God, we no longer want to be afraid. We no longer want to be self-righteous. We no longer want to be prideful. We no longer want our hearts to be stoned. We want our hearts to be softened, God. 
God, we want our hearts to experience the overwhelming, refreshing God. Our hearts and our souls are parts for you, God. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Our arms are stretched wide. We acknowledge our dependence on you. Come, Holy Spirit of God. Come, Holy Spirit of God. I need you. We need you. Come, Holy Spirit of God. Help us to hear your voice. You're not alone. You're mine. You belong to me. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. You are mine. And there's nothing, anything in this world could ever change that. You are mine. Holy Spirit of God, come. Showering on us. Shower on us. Thou pouring of your spirit. And the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he took it and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me, who I am, what I've done for you, child of God. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant that was shed for you so that you could enter the throne room of God's grace confidently. Not because of how good you are, not because of how moral you are, not because of how well you perform, but because Christ has once and for all settled it for you on the cross. As you come up this morning, pray that the Holy Spirit would once again quicken your heart, melt your heart, remind you of this truth. The Lord invites us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All glory, all honor, and praise belongs to you. Lord, the truth that we're reminded this morning, will you let this be the engine of our soul this entire week? Holy Spirit, at the opportune times, will you just remind us, remind us throughout this week. Remind us throughout this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.